Good morning. If you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to James chapter 1. James 1 is where we'll begin this period where we study from the Bible. James chapter 1. Good to see you this morning. We have visitors with us. Thank you so much for being here. Always want you to feel welcome. We appreciate the interest in spiritual things that you're showing by your presence this morning. We'd love to get to know you better. So please, uh, if there's anything that we can do to help you or any way we could get to know you better, please just stick around and let us know about that. But thank you for being here. James 1 and verse 16. James 1 and verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James has been talking in this text about how temptation is not from God. And that sin doesn't come from God. It doesn't originate with God. Specifically, sin comes when we are drawn away by our own desires and enticed. But then the question comes, well, what does come from God? And in verse 17, he answers that question. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from God. James corrects that way of thinking because what he's saying is that how we think about God matters. If we think that God is the source of bad things instead of good things, it's going to affect not only our relationship with God, but it's also going to affect eventually the way we live and how we treat other people. So in that spirit, I just want to take a few minutes this morning, and I want to share with you three things I want you to remember about God. Three things that are going to affect the way we think about God that then will play out not only in how we live, but also in how we treat other people. So the first of these is here in James chapter 1. It's just the idea that God doesn't change. He says in verse 17, speaking of God, that he is the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. When he says the father of lights, he is talking about the celestial bodies, sun, moon, and stars. And he is saying he is the God that in the same way we see some shifting and changing in orbits and things, and sometimes there are shadows that come because those things are moving around. Different times of day, different kinds of shadows. He says, God, who is the father of all of those lights, there is no shadow due to change. There's nothing about God moving. Instead, God is permanent and a fixture. So, God is always the same. Turn back a page to Hebrews 13. Hebrews 13 is right beside James 1. Hebrews 13, something similar is said about Jesus. Hebrews 13 and verse 8, it says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. So Jesus, he says, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always the same. He doesn't change. But that doesn't have a lot of context. What do you mean he doesn't change? Until you read verse 9, where he talks about don't be led away by various and strange teachings. What he is saying is... God's not going to change. Jesus is not going to change. So if you are changing, be certain that you're changing toward Jesus instead of away from him. Don't be led away. It's important to remember that God doesn't change because change implies some weakness. Change implies perhaps that we were not right before and we are changing to be right, or we were incomplete before and we're changing to become more complete. Think about the idea of growth. That when we grow, what we're really saying is I need to change so that I can become more of what I'm going to be as an adult. I need to grow. Or maybe even I need to grow in my knowledge. There's some weakness in my knowledge. Or I need to grow in some skill. There's some deficiency in my skill. And so that change implies that before I was not what I needed to be. 
God doesn't change because God does not have that weakness. Numbers 23, this is Balaam speaking, Balaam the prophet, who is talking about how God's not going to change his mind about what he has said. He says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? You can see how change in these instances would imply some kind of weakness. That God, he tried to say something, he tried to do it, but he just couldn't. See, that's what men would do. We might say, you know, I'm going to be there. I will be there tonight. But something might happen. You know, there are things that are outside our control that might prevent us. So we might change our minds and say, you know what? I I thought I wanted to do this, but I don't. But God is not man. He is not like that, where he's going to change his mind and suddenly decide, you know what? I was totally wrong about that before, because that would imply something about weakness in God. Changing also implies the possibility of just being wrong. This is 1 Samuel 15, 28. This is after Samuel is telling Saul that the kingdom is going to be taken away from him. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, a few verses later, I put the dots in here. A few verses later, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Well, how do you make sense of that? The Lord's not a man that he would have regret. Well, the first of those is the idea that Regret, you know, the the Lord is not going to lie or have regret as if he made a bad decision that needed to change, as if there's something wrong with God. He's not like man in that way. He's not changing his mind because he has said this, you know, he's going to tear the kingdom away, and now, oh no, he's not going to do it because that was incorrect. God's always going to keep his word. If he speaks it, he's going to accomplish it. That's the way that works. Now, the second, though, It's another way we use the word regret. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. You know, there are some times we say the word regret when what we mean is disappointment rather than guilt. You know, if if someone were to say, you know, I really regret that that happened, it doesn't necessarily mean I caused it. I just regret it. I'm sorry for it. I wish it hadn't happened. I regret it. But it is not I caused it. It's my fault in the way that we would do that as men. So God doesn't change his mind. God's going to fulfill his word, but sometimes God's going to be disappointed with the way people live and the way things go. That all seems fairly uncontroversial. But probably, maybe you're not in this audience, maybe you're you're listening to this lesson online later, somebody somewhere is going to say, but God does change his mind sometimes. And they're going to point to an example like Jonah. This is Jonah 3 and verse 4, where Jonah goes to the city of Nineveh. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And then a few verses later, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Hmm. Well, does God change his mind? I mean, after all, God says forty days, and forty days later... Nineveh was not overthrown. God relented of the disaster that he, would said, he had said he would do to them. I, I do think God clearly changes his mind here. He says he'll do something and then he doesn't. But I think we need to see this as God declaring judgment for a purpose. He wants to change behavior. He is saying, here is the punishment that's going to come if you don't change. And God is able to respond to us in a way that accomplishes his will no matter what we do. 
that no matter which door we go into, his will is still going to be accomplished. In fact, there's a beautiful picture in the book of Jeremiah where Jeremiah goes down to the potter's house and the potter is messing with the pots and, you know, there's a deficiency in one pie. You know, something gets wrong as it's spinning on the wheel and he changes it into a different vessel. And God says, that's what I can do with Israel. They want to go here, I can do this with them. They want to go here, I can do this with them. If they want to do right, I can make things good for them. If they want to do wrong, I can make things bad for them. God's will toward them, his purposes for them is always the same. And yet, depending on what they do, God changes what he does. So, what we're saying is God's will toward them, his purpose for them doesn't change. And he is moving them toward this position where they turn from their evil way by threatening them and showing them, I want things to change. Just think of a parent, by the way. Sometimes a parent knows that a child needs positive reinforcement and sometimes negative reinforcement. In fact, sometimes we would say there are threats involved. Now, parents, do you always follow through on your threats? Well, if there's behavior change, you might say, you know what? We're going to pass on that. We're going to soften that punishment. Don't get any ideas, my children. But we might do that because we got the desired behavior. And so God works in the same way. So God doesn't change. Why does that matter? It matters because it means we can rely on God. It matters because it means that God doesn't update with the times. And also, you know, we're going to have to think in different ways about what God's word means, how it applies in our time and our era, but we don't need to look at it and say, well, did God move? Is God's will different? Does God want different morality in 2019 than he did in 1919? Are things the same? I mean, did God change his mind? Does God really mean what the word says? We can rely on God. He does not need to make changes. He doesn't need to progress and develop. Instead, God wants the same basic things from us. Faith in him, love for one another, kindness, obedience. The same basic things he has always wanted from man from the very beginning. That's who God is, and God doesn't change. Second, to remember about God. God always loves you. Scripture tells us that God loved us at our worst. Let's go to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. Scripture seems to go out of the way. I'm thinking of the New Testament particularly. Go out of its way to point out how unworthy we are of love and how God loved us despite that unworthiness. Just to point out just how improbable and unlikely and not fitting it is that God should love us. In Romans 5 and verse 5, Romans 5 and verse 5, Paul writes, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So he says the, the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Spirit, and he elaborates on what that love looks like. It looks like a God who is willing to send his Son to die for people who are utterly unworthy. And he, he tries to use a comparison to people and how we understand people. He says there might be somebody somewhere who is willing to die for someone else. Now, we sometimes see that, and when we see that, 
we admire it. We appreciate it. We say, wow, that person made, we sometimes call it the ultimate sacrifice to die for someone else. But, but what Paul says is, even then, if you're going to lay down your life for somebody, you're probably going to make sure they're a good person. You're probably going to make sure they're a righteous person. And he says, even then, the pool of people who would be willing to die for a really good or righteous person is really small. Scarcely for a righteous person would someone dare to die. Now verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loved us before we were good. He loved us before we were righteous. He loved us enough, in fact, to send his son the ultimate sacrifice when we were at our least deserving because God always loves us. In fact, you could even throw that into the past tense. God has always loved us before we were worthy of his love. Go with me over to Ephesians 2 now. Ephesians 2, Paul has a similar wording where he talks about where we were when Christ loved us. This is Ephesians 2. I'm going to read beginning in verse 4. Spare a little bit of some of the background there in verses 1 to 3 of how dead we were. Ephesians 2 and verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he loved us, and this says specifically, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So God loved us because of his mercy and because of his great love. He loved us when we were at our least deserving. And he gave us new life by sacrificing Jesus' life for us. 1 John 4 says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Notice how he... he as if that's not enough. He says, just think about it and focus on this part. In this is love, not that we have loved God. You know, if that were the situation, maybe God would feel he had to reciprocate. Well, they're pretty scummy people, but they love me. I might as well give them something. He says, no, 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 that's not what happened. We didn't love God. He loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So here we were in a position of being unloving and unworthy and God loved us and offered himself for us. The lasting picture of God in the mouth of Jesus is that picture of a father whose son has run away and taken his inheritance and wasted it. And yet that father sits waiting, ready to rush out and hug his son and embrace him and give him the best robe and the fatted calf and sandals on his feet and a ring for his hand. That is God. That young man discovered that your father never stops loving you. That's the way God feels about us. Never. That there is nothing you can do that will make God stop loving you. There is nowhere you can go. There are no things you can say. There are no actions you can commit that will mean God doesn't love you anymore. You can always go home. God always loves you. Now, does that mean that God always approves of what we do? Obviously not. In fact, it is God's great love for us that 
has him call us out of the evil things that we do toward better things for us, back to him. And yet what we cannot do is somehow confuse the idea that God would always approve of what I do with the idea that God always loves me. We need to know that we can always come back to a father who will welcome us. I am not saying, nor does scripture teach, that God is okay with just whatever we decide and whatever we do. In fact, I would say it this way. God doesn't love us in the weak, shallow way that the world does. You know, our world starts saying this now, where if you love somebody, you don't criticize them or correct them or judge them. Instead, love in our world's terms is to embrace them and accept them and celebrate them in whatever they're doing, no matter what. But that's not God's love. God's love cannot say, no, it's great what you're doing when it's bad. It's great what you're doing when it's bad for you. God's love is to call us out of that toward what is good. But my point, my point is God always loves us. And we need to know that because people are not that way. As much as there is talk in our culture about how much we love each other because we don't call each other to account for our sins, we can't count on people to always love us, can we? You can't. People write us off. Sometimes we burn our bridges with people. Sometimes we exhaust their patience. And sometimes they hurt us because they have their own issues. Sometimes love just dies. But I want you to remember about God, that God always loves you. And no matter what you've done or where you've been, you can always go home. That's the message of the gospel. And the third thing is that God wants what's best for you. The Bible also teaches us that God is disposed to do good to us. That's the passage we started with. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. He is the one who is the source of the blessing and good in our lives. And part of that is that God wants ultimate salvation for all people. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look there. 1 Timothy chapter 2. God wants all of us to be in a relationship with him that will be a blessing to us now and in eternity. 1 Timothy chapter 2. First Timothy 2 and verse 3. First Timothy 2 and verse 3. It says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He's talking about the idea of praying for all people. It's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. I don't know if you underline things in your Bible. If you do, this is a good one. Verse 4. Because it speaks specifically to the desire of God. What does God want? God desires that all men come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. That's what God wants. All men. He wants to bless all people. He wants to save all people. He wants to live forever with all people. That is the heart of of God. And it's important because sometimes we can become convinced that what God really wants, oh, it's a little more sinister than that. Sometimes there are whole systems of teaching, I'm talking about Christian teaching, that can lead us to believe that God is trying to trip us up on some kind of technicality. That when judgment day comes, he could say, oh, look, there was this little word I put in here. You didn't get it. You're out. As if God is just waiting for us to fail. 
And then he could say, gotcha. God desires that all men be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants what's best for you. He doesn't want you to fail. Ezekiel says this, or at least God speaking through Ezekiel, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his evil way and live. Do we really think that punishing the wicked makes God happy? That that's really what he's after? God says, no, I don't have any pleasure in this. He says, what I really want, my desire, is that they turn from their evil way and live. God wants what's best for them. I want you to turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6 now. Deuteronomy chapter 6. There is a verse here, and I've read from this verse before here, but it is a verse that, that forms an essential part of the way I understand Scripture. So I want to read it with you again. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 24. We talked last week about how in Deuteronomy, Moses tells Israelite parents how they need to be teaching their children. And so here is one of the answers that an Israelite father gives to his son as he asks about why do we keep all these commandments? Why do we listen to what the Lord says in all of these places in the law? Deuteronomy 6.24, And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So God says, tell your kids that what God commands us, did you notice it in verse 24, is for our good always. Physical good, spiritual good, righteousness to us, blessing in the land. It's always for our good. Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah 32, 39. I will give them one heart and one way that they will fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. God's, the fear of God, the commands of God are for our own good. They are a blessing to us. And I think we need that perspective. We need to know that what God reveals in his word is not a punishment for us. It's not so that we can't do anything fun. It's not, oh, I've got to keep the rules because, because, because. It's not even just because we're afraid that if we don't do what God says, we're afraid of what's going to happen. It is for our good. That's what God wants. He wants your good. Now, the New Testament way of expressing that is the idea of grace. Favor, blessings, gifts from God. Ways God showers good things on us, particularly in Jesus. But I just want you to get that whole picture and put it up in a bundle. And don't forget this about God. He wants what's best for you. I truly do believe that God's way is the best way. I've tried it. And I've tried other ways, and I truly do believe. In fact, to me, it is one of the cornerstones of my faith to know that God's way is the best way of having a family. I've seen it the other way. I've lived it the other way, and this way is best. It is the best way to raise children. I've been down the other road. This is better. It is the best way to live in a self-disciplined way. I've been down the other road, and God's way is better. 
And so for me personally, I become convinced the more I go down other paths and the more I trust God's paths that what God wants is always for my good. There's some trust in that. I hope I don't have to go down every wrong path before I believe that. I hope you don't either. But at the end of the day, what we are saying is God wants what's best and everything he has done and everything he has revealed is part of him giving us what is best. That means that God's rules are not arbitrary. God's just deciding, uh, yeah, let's make them do that. Let's make them do that. Yeah, I don't like that. Let's not do that. As if God is on a power trip. It's like, I just really want to make sure they're going to do whatever I think. Sometimes people say that about Christianity, by the way. That it's just a bunch of rules. You've got to restrain yourself all the time. You can't have any fun. That kind of thing. Satan attacked that in the garden. You know, God, God said that because he knows if you ever eat that fruit, you're going to be like him. He's afraid of you. He doesn't want that. As if God's motives are suspect. God's way, back in the garden, law of Moses, under Christ, at every point, the best way to live, the best way to parent, the best way to treat others, because God wants what's best for us. And I will also say this, that it's not just God's rules or God's commands, it is also the way God deals with us. You know, what God allows to happen in our lives, what temptations God allows to come into our way, that sometimes we get frustrated about that. Why would God allow this to happen? What is God doing to me? But I want to assure you, it's not arbitrary. He's not just trying to cause us pain. He's not just trying to trip us up. God wants what's best for us. Does that mean that God just always wants my comfort? No, that is not what that means. In fact, God is far more concerned about our character than our comfort. And we need to remember that about God. That when we are sometimes frustrated because we want to be more comfortable, we want things to be easier, we want the commands to be easier to follow, we want the situations to resolve and us just be at peace and have everything we want, that God has higher purposes in mind because God wants what's best for us, even if it's not comfortable in the moment. And we can trust him about that. The good news is he has a better perspective on that than we do. The bad news is we're going to have to adjust our perspective. And trust him about it. We can always trust God because God wants what's best. So that's all I've got this morning. Three things to remember. I want you to think about your relationship with God. How you are interacting with God this morning. And if something needs to change. God doesn't change. But sometimes we need to. God always loves you. You can always go home to God. And God wants what's best for you. You can trust him. So does something need to change this morning? This is the time that we reserve for those who need to make a need known, whether to be baptized into Christ, have their sins washed away, or to make something known to this group so that we can help you and pray with you. If there's any need that you have, please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.